Welcome to the OnScript podcast, your home for world-class conversations on scripture and theology, where you get to meet some of the best in the field. Visit us at onscript.study. Say hello on Twitter at OnScript Podcast and stop by our Facebook page at facebook.com slash OnScript. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the podcast. My name is Matt Lynch. I'm here at Regent College in Vancouver. I'm a co-host along with Matt Bates, Drew Johnson, Aaron Heim, Chris Tilling, and Amy Brown-Hughes. Thanks so much for listening today. I want to say a special thanks to all of you who give regularly to OnScript. It's it's a huge help to keeping this operation going. Uh, if you'd like to be a supporter of OnScript, uh, just 2 or $5 a month, whatever you can manage, uh, we'd really appreciate it. If you could go to onscript.study forward slash donate, there's information there for doing that. Thanks also to those of you who have shared the word about Onscript through any means that you have to do that, whether it be through the uh, podcast app that you're listening to or on iTunes. Um, all of that goes a long way toward helping other people discover the show. So we've got a great episode for you here and hope you enjoy it. Welcome OnScript superfans. Today I have with us Mean Gene Green. We'll come back to that uh, later. <laughs> You're not mean at all. But Gene Green, who is currently uh, a dean at the Trinity International University in Florida. He's an emeritus professor at Wheaton College. And before that, he spent 13 years teaching in Latin America, both uh, Costa Rica and where was the other location, Gene? Dominican Republic. We were in Santo Domingo. So you really know Spanish uh, in all of its flavors (laughs) Uh, because Dominican Spanish is a whole other thing. Um, he's published uh, commentary on First and Second Thessalonians. He's helped uh, in the translation for the Common English Bible. And today we're going to be talking about his most recent book, Vox Petri, A Theology of Peter. And I want to start by saying, I remember the very moment. Uh, I was a fairly new Christian and I had a guy who was intellectual. He went on to do a PhD in the Old Testament, but he was he led me to faith and he kind of mentored me as I read the Bible for the very first time when I was 19. Um, and I remember saying something about second Peter. I was reading something in second Peter and, uh, or first Peter, I don't actually remember. And he said, well, of course, you know, Peter probably didn't write that. And I was like, what? And he said, well, you know, um, most, most scholars believe that a, f- a fisherman couldn't write at that level of Greek. And of course I didn't know anything about Greek, but I do remember a light going on in my head, like, oh, this is a real person from a real place and his like bi- his biography mattered and what ended up in that text. So I was very excited. I've always had a special place in my heart for, for Peter. I've done work on Mark's gospel, which we'll come back to in a little bit. Um, Gene, welcome to OnScript and uh, thank you for being here with us. And I really want to hear how you ended up writing this particular book. Well, thanks for having me, and it's great to have uh, all the OnScript folk out there listening to this podcast. And uh, uh, don't get me going. Uh, I love Peter, and um, I'm anxious one day to have a conversation with him face-to-face. He has uh, influenced us in ways that uh, uh, we don't really imagine. Um, I started out uh, this journey with Peter back in uh, the late 1970s. I was at uh, the University of Aberdeen. I remember uh, getting there, being handed a key to the office, uh, 
and um, being asked, what do you want to do your doctoral studies on? And, you know, in those days, you didn't have to tell before you went. And I said, I don't know. And they gave me the gave me the key and they said, well, when you get something, come on back. <laughs> so so I sat down in this office and um, I remember going back to Stephen Neal and uh, his history of New Testament interpretation. It was before the, the Tom Wright revision. And uh, he mentioned that First uh, uh, Peter was a place where there hadn't been sufficient work. And it was about that time uh, that Jack Elliott, John Hall Elliott, came out with his JBL article on First uh, Peter, the rehabilitation of an exegetical stepchild. If you know anything about First Peter, you know that that uh, John Elliott uh, has been just a champion of bringing back this book into scholarly discussion. So the love affair with Peter began many, many years ago as I did my doctoral dissertation on the relationship between theology and ethics in First Peter. And I taught on Peter. I wrote uh, a Spanish com- or t- commentary. I wrote a Spanish uh, commentary in Spanish on Primero de Pedro y Segundo de Pedro, and then uh, taught it over the years. And then uh, Don Carson at Trinity invited me to write a book on the theology of Peter. And I go, oh, my word, not just first Peter, but on Peter. And uh, what a challenge that presented. Uh, it took about a, a year for me to say yes to that project because I knew the technical difficulties involved in trying to hear uh, Peter because of the critical problems that surrounded uh, the writings that were attributed to Peter. And then uh, took me a year. I said yes. I started work on this. The Vox Petri took me about 15 years, not straight through, but, you know, sabbaticals and, and summers. Uh, and then it got to be too big for the new studies in biblical theology. And uh, so I'm grateful that uh, Michael Thompson at uh, Cascade picked it up. It is a chunky book, isn't it? It's a little little big, not quite a doorstopper. Well, I was but, checking you know, the page count. It's 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 not quite 500 pages. Yeah, but you notice the size of the page is fairly large. It, it, and it is it, it is large, yes. Regular size yeah, print, yeah. and uh, it's, yeah, a, it's a large book, yeah. yeah. Yeah, so be patient as you work your way through it. But uh, yeah, so it started a while ago. Uh, this has been a project in the making, and I've been convinced that, uh, as I say in the beginning of the book, that Peter is really the lost boy of, of Christian theology. I really believe that. Which sounded like a more startling claim. It, like everything, it sounds like a startling claim. And then as you work through the claim, you're like, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. I did not think about all the ways in which Peter is, to use a bad metaphor, infecting uh, many other parts of uh, New Testament. Uh, and I, I guess, what? Well, do you have any shots from the hip as to why you think Peter has been neglected as a theologian of the church? Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Oh, definitely. Well, I, I think, first off, we, we lost Peter in the pulpit. Uh, Peter, I mean, he makes for a nice sermon, doesn't he? You know, here's a guy who um, is uh, very responsive. He's very impetuous. Uh, but he has his weaknesses. You know, he walks on the water and then he, he flips out. He, he begins to sink. You know, he uh, confesses Jesus the Christ and then rebukes Jesus uh, 
uh, when uh, Jesus announces his uh, his crucifixion. He affirms that he's going to be faithful uh, when everyone else forsakes the Lord, uh, but but then he fails. But then he's restored. Remember the you know, go tell my disciples and Peter at the end of, of Mark and that, that tenderness. So we love him because he's the uh, uh, disciple of faith, but then he fails and then he's restored. But what happens in that, he becomes then um, kind of a paradigm for Christian discipleship rather than a theological figure. So we lose him in the pulpit as a theologian. We lost him in the Reformation. Uh, you know what happened? Uh, well, the Catholics, they get Peter, and then the Protestants, well, we get Paul. Uh, so I think, uh, but that's the case, I think, for many Catholic scholars as well. Peter, as a theologian, is not all that central either there. But um, we, we lose him in the Reformation. We lost him definitely to critical scholarship. You know, how do we hear Peter? Uh, Papias said that Peter's behind Mark, but but you know, and I know that for many years, uh, uh, people said, eh, we're not quite so sure about that. It was folk like uh, Baucom, Richard Baucom, and Martin Hengel that began to say, well, maybe there's something to this Papias testimony. But is Mark um, the preaching of Peter, as as Papias said, or is it not? What about the Petrine speeches in Acts? Were those just Lucan inventions, whoever Luke might be? Or are they really accounts of Peter's preaching? Was Peter written, first Peter written by Peter? And then we've got the, you know, enormous problem, second Peter as well. So when you go back through, you say, what do you have? Uh, in the way of critical scholarship that would bring us back to Peter. So I think we've lost him on, on all these, these counts. So if you take a look on your bookshelf and see how many books there are on the theology of Paul, I mean, they'll fill shelf after shelf, and there's more that keep coming out. But take a look for the number of books that you have on the theology of Peter. And there's almost nothing, almost nothing up there. Just just a few volumes. Recently, we've begun to see a bit of a revival in interest in uh, in Peter, uh, Larry Hurt, late Larry Hurtado and Helen Bond at Aberdeen uh, put together a symposium on Peter, and which was published by Erdman's. My I kept my article out of there uh, for the book. Um, uh, Martin Hengel's last work uh, that was on on Peter, the underestimated uh, apostle. Uh, Mark Spockmule has done, you know, a couple of books on on Peter, and um, so you know, there's a bit of revival of interest uh, in in Peter as a figure, but nothing like Paul. And I do think we need to go back and and find Peter. You know, it's. Uh, there's a bifurcation between uh, the uh, the Simon of history and the Peter of faith, and just as we have the in the Gospels, the bifurcation between the Jesus of history and the Christ of faith. You know, can we find the historical Peter? And that's a big question that's on the table. And so you've actually, even in what you've given us so far, you, it seems that you've laid out a few different Peters that we're talking about. So we could even say there's the portrayed Peter in the Gospels. So like the, the ones that preach, uh, that you know, all those little stories that preach really easily. Um, there's the, the text of First Peter, the speech acts of, of Peter and Acts. Um, 
and then and then uh, there's actually the the real guy who spoke and, and and probably wrote things down and had a real influence. Um, and you make a difference between uh, the the verba petri versus the vox petri. Uh, so what's the distinction there, and why is that important? Yeah, well, I don't think that Peter comes to us unmediated. I think that what we have is Peter plus. I mean, there are other folk in the mix. Uh, if we are to believe Papias, which I think we should, uh, Mark was Peter's translator, and uh, he was a fairly faithful translator, but every translation is an interpretation. So he's handling uh, the materials from Peter. Can we go to that Papias quote real quick? Sorry, um, just for people who aren't aware. Do you, do you of have the, it there? What, yeah, I'm, that's great. I, I don't have it in, in, well, I don't have the page number. Marked, and I don't have it here either. But um, but maybe you could just explain what the quote is. I mean, he basically says that Mark, as best he could, recorded um, the preaching of Peter, um, not necessarily in chronological order. Right, right. I'm looking for well, it. Well, uh, the, he, he said, you know, that uh, he recorded the crea of, of Peter. And those were like the working notes. And, uh, uh, and then he said that Mark is not in order, uh, as opposed to Matthew, you know, which is in order. And when you begin to examine that language in relationship to literary composition and editing, it had to do with a final uh, editing. If something is not in order, it, it's we're, we're talking about a draft here. So um, uh, it's quite true that that uh, Mark is not a fully finished product. I mean, any student of Greek will go to Mark and go, I'm thankful that we have Matthew Luke that cleaned up the, the Greek here. <laughs> you know? uh, and it's, it, it is uh, an inferior literary product. Uh, and, and Papias admits that, but there's something, you know, there's something really raw, something very authentic, uh, about it. And so Papias, uh, points us back there, uh, to Mark as the translator. He talks about his translation philosophy, which points to a more, a more literal, uh, translation. And then, but, but recognizing that Mark is not fully complete. You know, it's not it's not polished. It's not, you know, not the thing you'd want to turn into your editor or the publisher. by any means. It, it is a uh, the, and part of the problem with the Papias uh, quote here that we're dealing with is, is that what is it's only been maintained was it's Eusebius that uh, we, we get it embedded in another text. Right. So so there's been some question as to whether this was original and um and where did where did Eusebius get this text from, and why didn't he quote more of it? And um, but when you read it, it I mean, it reads very straightforward, like authentic comments about the memoirs uh, called Mark, right? Right, right. Well, when but you know what I think is interesting, Drew, and we talked about this before, is the way that um, uh, uh, Papias has been getting more thumbs up in in recent years uh again richard balkham and martin hengel both went and and were affirming of the uh of the testimony there so i uh, you know i i think that we've got 
to recognize, and I think that really drove me in this whole thing, is the way that uh, Peter seemed to be lost to us in critical scholarship, seemed to be lost to us as a theologian within the church. And yet, as you read the New Testament, there's a Petrine primacy that is so dominant. I mean, you know, you think about it. He's the first disciple chosen. Uh, first one to walk on water, although he sank, you know. Uh, he was the first one to confess that Jesus is the Christ. Uh, he was the first one to be to deny the Lord and then be restored. Uh, he's remembered as the first witness of the resurrection. Uh, whatever we say about the women, and it still bothers me that the women aren't mentioned as the first witnesses, uh, but he was remembered by the early church as the first witness. He was the first leader of the early church. He was the first one to confess that Jesus is the Christ. He was the first one to also open up the mission to the Gentiles and uh, uh, preach the gospel to the Gentiles. And then he was the first to uh, talk about uh, affirm Gentile inclusion without uh, circumcision, without becoming proselytes. Which most of these are actually uh, ironic statements. You know, there's like a caveat, like he's the first to uh, claim Jesus is the Christ and then get called uh, Satan, right? (laughs) Exactly. He goes goes up on the mountain and says, not knowing what to say, he he says, let let us build, right? So, but but that's why we love him as well. That's, That's why we love him. But you see, there's something about that creative impulse that this guy's got. And, and he gets it. He gets it. He gets it. And, and it might not be that he gets it perfectly. I mean, I think that the, the incident in Galatians 2 in Antioch shows that, you know, sometimes Peter didn't get all the implications. But that's not to say that he wasn't a knockdown good theologian. He got it. And the reason that Paul makes a point of taking down Peter at Antioch was just to say, I've got the real gospel. And by the way, Peter gave me the right hand of fellowship. And when Peter wasn't living accordingly, I I took him down publicly. Well, in one sense, you know, he's using Peter as the foil and and it's no less a pig figure than Peter I was able to, to rebuke. And, and so it elevates Peter in the end of the day. Now, Fiend Perkins, in her wonderful book on Peter, um, you know, makes a point that if during the early second century, if you wanted to support um, the the gospel against heresy, uh, you'd appeal to Peter. And uh, so he is remembered then as a theologian. Um, and if you want to uh, support heresy. You'd also appeal to Peter. <laughs> you know, Peter's for it. If you wanted to make uh, so, the point, you, know, you call a hail Peter. Were, right, right, <laughs> right. And so Peter ends up being somebody who's remembered as a key theological figure uh, in the, the early second century, at least. But we've lost all sense of that. We've lost all sense of that. I do want to come back to the Gentile mission issue a little bit later, um, but I want to keep on discussing this um, the separation between the verb and the, the verba and vox petri. So, uh, if I read read you correctly, we're not going to get necessary. Where you said he always comes mediated to us, and e- even in the letters, it's possible there's some kind of amanuensis here. Somebody's writing on on behalf. Um, 
that we're being presented the view of Peter in some way. Um, I guess, uh, is there any, is there any other person we do this with where we say like, look, we don't have their words, but we have, we have them, we have their voice. We have their, in, in fact, it's the kind of not identical various testimonies to the person that somehow, you know, like when you, police officers, when they pull a car of kids over, like when, when I was a young punk, you know, they pull us over, they'd separate us out instantly. <laughs> I was, uh, I ran the streets a little more than I should have when I was a kid. And, um, you know, they immediately separate us to get our various stories separate from one another. And of course, if they were identical, then they get really suspicious. Right. Um, but it's because they were unique and overlapping enough. So I wonder if, if, if it's the, this, varied voices or varied uh, depictions of Peter and uh, hearings from Peter that actually uh, strengthen the case for the voice of Peter uh, in the New Testament. Yeah, yeah, I would say so. And as you take a look at the book, uh, Vox Petri, I, I deal a lot uh, with the uh, with the question of how, how do we get back to Peter? And I've uh, kind of jumped the rail and of historical critical methodology and gone back to the epistemological category of testimony, uh, taking a look at contemporary epistemologists like Cody and Jennifer Lackey, but then also going back to ancient discussions about testimony. And, um, you know, uh, we... Uh, need to recognize that the ancients weren't weren't uh, uh, simply playing loose uh, with uh, with testimony. I mean, they did use written sources. They used verbal sources. They believed that being eyewitness and being present was important. So you know, the line between historian and journalist that we try to separate, uh, they they held together. But, you know, there was um, a lot of critique of those that didn't give faithful testimony and historiography and uh, who played loose with the facts. So, you know, you've got that whole stream in there. But the thing about testimony that I found fascinating was the way it was coupled with discussions about rhetoric. And, um, you know, it's not just about what occurred, uh, what was said, but about an audience awareness that you had to speak to. So as soon as you introduce the rhetoric, then, you know, you'd expect some variation of how this testimony is then presented because you're audience conscious. So, for example, um, there are a lot of folk who would want to... say, well, you know, acts, not a faithful recording or reporting in any way, shape or form of the uh, speeches of Peter or Paul, because they sound so similar. And I want to turn around and say, well, uh, we'd expect them to sound similar, uh, given uh, testimony that uh, uh, the author of Luke Acts is trying to make a point. And, uh, and obviously, is bringing together this common voice of these two key figures in early Christianity. So, you know, there's always some shaping that's going on. And I wish we could tease it all out. And I don't think we can. We have the uh, Vox Petri, the, the voice of Peter, but not necessarily the Ipsissima Verba of, of, of Peter. Right. Um, but we can hear him. I mean, he's there. He's there. Yeah, I think as I got further into your book, it 
it became more and more clear that there um, there is something consonant. Even you know, even as you get into First uh, Peter and and look at things like um, the speeches and acts, where where is where in the Hebrew Bible is Peter or his scriptures? We would say where is he going as his source book for thinking in the first letter and also in the uh, speech acts. Um, you can already see some overlap there. Uh, however, there is this big dark cloud hanging over this whole discussion, which is Second um, Peter. So, <laughs> so what do we do with Second Peter? And I mean, what do you do with it? No, what do we do with Second Peter? What do yeah. we do with it? Well, uh, as as you know, I, I wrote the Becknet commentary on uh, on Jude and and Second Peter. And uh, when I was writing that, I left the um, the discussion of the authorship of Second Peter to the very last. Uh, and I wanted to, you know, be very, very careful and very nuanced uh, about that and recognizing, you know, that this was an open question, uh, you know, early on in the church. Uh, it was a disputed book. And so I, 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 you know, I'm cautious about saying off of their heads to somebody that has uh, uh, concerns about the authorship of of Second Peter. I mean, you know, the the um, uh, the language is very, very different than First Peter, and we can account for, I think, some of that through the role of the amanuensis. Uh, uh, Randy Richards, you know, has uh, alerted us to how uh, what kind of uh, editorial. Uh, work an amanuensis could do, uh, so some of it for that. But you know, when the when the uh, similar ideas are are expressed with different terminology, you know, you wonder what's going on there. So what I did, uh, you know, I, I I delivered my soul on Second Peter in the commentary, but for this volume, I punted. I'm sorry, I punted. I left him out. <laughs> I, I noticed. Uh, I noticed there was there's yeah. less references to things going on in Second Peter. Well, let's let's just say there's no chapter yeah. on the theology of Second Peter because I said, look, um, if I were to put that in, uh, I felt it would be it would be the main focus and a distraction just because of all the controversy surrounding second peter i mean there's enough controversy about peter and mark and 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 acts and 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 first peter but i really felt like uh second peter was a bridge too too far i hope somebody else will pick that one up uh you know i've uh, had some a good conversation with ben witherington about this and and the common you know the common uh themes that are in first peter and second peter and i think there is more there than what I realized at first uh, of commonalities, um, but they're more thematic. You know, we we're kind of stuck because of our training on the on the linguistics of it. And uh, um, uh, but but I think that there's there's an argument to be made. But I just felt, I mean, you see the size of the book; it would have got, it would have been too much of a distraction. I really do, because my, my main point was that Peter was not only a theologian, but the foundational theologian next to Jesus in the early church. And this is in part reflected in the early canons. You know, uh, we put the Gospels in Acts, and then, then we got Paul, the 13 by Paul, and then the Catholic letters, um, we throw in Hebrews and Revelation for good measure. Uh, but early Christian canons, Gospels in Acts, and then we went to the Catholic collection, uh, 
the seven by the three pillars, Peter, James, and John, with Jude thrown in for good measure, you know, as a brother of, of James, and then Paul. And I think that's kind of the development of early Christianity, isn't it? it it's Jesus, and then the handoff to Peter, James, and John, and then Paul. Now, some of your folk won't like this, but I think Paul's derivative. Wow. <laughs> I think he's derivative. <laughs> uh, I can hear and, people um, squirming right now. Yeah, yeah, I know, I know, I know. But let me just talk. That's okay. Twist but, but, the but, screws. But 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 uh, be patient with it, you know. Yeah. So what happens? Paul, and great guy, love Paul. I think as as a former missionary, my hat is off to this guy. How he he could contextualize the gospel, absolutely amazing. Uh, so I love Paul, but at the same time, you know, when Paul got his revelation, his gospel, what did he do? He goes out and he lays it before the pillars. He said, did I get it? And they give him the right hand of fellowship. You know, they said, yeah, you got it, dude. And so they were, they, you find this, there's not this, uh, you know, Tubingen or revived Tubingen that Goulder did of, uh, you know, the Peter versus Paul. No, no, they're, 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 they're together. I want to ask you one other question before we move into the actual theology of Peter. Um, and that's uh, when Peter in first Peter five, when he says, I appeal to you, therefore brothers as a fellow elder and uh, a witness of the sufferings of Jesus. I don't remember if it's Christ or Jesus there, but um, okay. So he's the pillar of the church. Um, what, why do you think he appeals to them as brothers, as a fellow uh, presbyter, and then enigmatically to me as a witness of the sufferings of Christ, which if you know the gospel story at that point, you'll realize that that is not a brag. That's not a flex, as they say today. Um, that, that, that almost might be a sign of humiliation. Do you think he's trying to situate his position as pillar uh, kind of like a... Um, I would think of it in a Torah way of the king, you know, like he's not to be above anybody. He's he's just a fellow servant and mm-hmm. puts himself into yeah. the chief shepherd yeah. as everybody else is a shepherd. Or, Well, the man was humbled, wasn't he, uh, on, on more than one occasion. And uh, I think that that comes out. Um, there's a um, there's a tenderness in there as well as uh, a very, very strong voice. And I just see him as um, as a figure. I mean, we usually like to think about early Christian figures as as these great uh, leaders on their own, um, because we come at these stories with a very individualistic uh, cultural mindset. But it's always the community. You know, it's always Paul and it's always Peter and. And nobody is alone. And so Peter is a man with others, whether it's at the tomb, whether it's gathered around the table with Jesus, whether it's in the leadership of the early church, whether it's writing First uh, Peter, uh, and then drawing the, the circle wide and bringing bringing people in uh he's more collectivist isn't he and 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 humble um i think he exhibits that virtue so if there is if we can shrink the difference between the assignment of history and the uh peter of faith if if we see 
the Peter, the image of Peter as truly reflective of what Simon is all about. I think he's a humble man. Humble man. Um, yeah. I, so that leads me to uh, a little bit more into how you're how you're examining the text, which is uh, essentially the back two thirds of the book. Um, do you see a difference between Mark's Peter and the epistolary Peter? Uh, do you, I mean, do you see like two different voices that need to be kind of Venn diagram overlapped, or do you just see it as one voice that pours forth? Yeah. Um, uh, one of the things that I, I was doing in the um, uh, writing Vox Petri was going through every one of the witnesses uh, after, you know, looking at whether we could really say, you know, Peter is behind this mark or the speeches in Acts or, or First Peter, uh, went through book by book and and pulled out, say, okay, what's the theology here? And and I'll, I'll be honest with you, Drew, you know, uh, you know, as a scholar that, that sometimes you're off on a road and you really don't know where it's going to go. I mean, you, you're kind of hoping it'll end up where you'd want to. You want to be uh, f- faithful to the evidence and and realizing that your thesis could be derailed at any moment. And so um, all the way through it, I'm, I'm asking a basic question. Is there a common voice all the way through here? Uh, what is similar? Because the si- dissimilarities are are striking. I mean, it's it's not only literary genre, but also themes. But then finding themes that are all the way through the literature was the other piece of it. So I think that's why I say it's, it's kind of both and. You know, there are distinctives in each piece of literature, and yet there is common voice. So, for example... Love the uh, work that uh, Ricky Watts right. did. Right, I was going to ask you about on, this. Uh, uh, yeah, 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 on uh, on the New Exodus and and Mark, and then we have uh, Cha's work on uh, on the New Exodus and Acts. Although he doesn't really deal with with Peter uh, quite enough, and uh, you know, there the theme of the New Exodus is is one that comes all the way through. The, the Petrine literature. I mean, it's not absolutely unique to Peter, but it is a theme that comes all the way through. Uh, one of the, the themes is, gosh, uh, one of the central themes of our faith is the uh, atoning death of Christ, Mark ten forty five. The Son of Man did not come to uh, be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. And I'll never forget reading... Coleman's book, you know, that, that famous volume in the middle of last century, uh, uh, Oscar Coleman, Peter, Disciple, Apostle, Martyr. And uh, he, he points back to Mark 1045 and Peter's statements about the atonement and uh, pins our understanding of the atoning death of Christ on Peter. I mean, that, that, and he, he has this almost throwaway line in the middle of the book. Uh, Peter might be more important for the development of Christian theology than we, than we realize. And um, really, Vox Petri is kind of a riff on that statement uh, there. So, you know, what, what is, what's a theme that comes through all the way through the Petrine literature? It's not unique to Peter, but it is there um, 
that the uh, the atonement, uh, our understanding of the um, of the death of Christ as an atoning death. So, you know, I came to the end of this thing, and and I, I looked at the summaries of, of Peter's theology, and I said, you know, what's unique here? You know, what's what's special here? And the surprise was that there wasn't much special. Um, <laughs> I've heard you say in another interview uh, yeah. that a, a reviewer might have even said, like, this doesn't seem, maybe they were talking about something else, but uh, this doesn't seem so unique, right? This, Yeah, yeah. And, it's, and, and that's the whole point. <laughs> it's not unique. It is foundational. You want to go back to foundational Christian theology? Go to Peter. Now, I mentioned before that Paul's derivative, you know, uh, Paul was uh, was given the right hand of fellowship. But also before that, Paul went up to interview Peter. That's what he says to the Galatians. And, uh, you know, there's a lot to debate about what that word means. But, but let me tell you, I mean, if, if Peter and Paul are together, you better believe that Paul is asking uh, Peter about the story. What was it like to walk? What was Jesus saying? And that's why I say he's derivative, Paul's derivative, because he's he's getting the story from Peter, and and so you know I think that uh, again Paul is is important, uh, and but I don't see him as a figure that is contradicting Peter or or against Peter. Yeah, yeah. I I, I did wonder also um, because anybody who's uh, worked in Mark knows about uh, Ricky Watts's work, which I think is uh, fantastic. I wonder why this. I'm just asking you to speculate at this point, but why you think that Peter's uh, a centrality to Peter's voice is this New Exodus ideal? Um, and w- maybe you could tell us, a little, summarize in a thumbnail, what the, the, the notion of the New Exodus for those who maybe don't know uh, what's, what we're referring to here. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, exactly why he picked up with it. I mean, uh, you know, I'll I, I just have to take a guess and maybe ask you on it because you worked on Mark. I mean, why would he why would he do this? Except it was a part of messianic expectation, the the renewal, the restoration of Israel, the uh, the way of the Lord. You know, this idea of the way um, that is so prominent in the uh, in the new. Uh, exodus and that messianic expectation of the new exodus. Uh, so, I mean, this is a, a, a prominent uh, Old Testament and Jewish theme that's then picked up in Mark and and elsewhere. So, I, I think it's it's part of what's on the ground uh, already within Judaism, and that coupled with messianic expectation. But, um, uh, you know, I, I think that Peter walked with Jesus. I think that, uh, there, there's uh, something of that, uh, that historical connection with the Lord that, that brings us out. But it's this idea of the way, you know, and you've, you, you've worked on Mark. I mean, how much is the way of the Lord uh, a prominent theme? And uh, I think Joel Marcus, you know, brings out such a wonderful work on, on, on this as well. So, you know, what does it mean to be on, on the way? The other thing, you know, the, the whole of the stone testimony uh, that, that we trace back then to Peter, 
uh, central and foundational upon this rock, you know, and Peter keeps working this over and over again. Uh, and we see it in uh, in First Peter chapter chapter two as well. So new ex- exodus, uh, the, all the stone testimony, the um, the atoning death of Christ. These are common central themes of the faith that I think can be traced back to Peter. Uh, so I, I had planned on asking you this, and you just rolled right into it. So that worked out perfectly. Thank you. Uh, but um, because you, you uh, in every uh, piece of testimony, you kind of walk through the themes that emerge. And so you see temple, stone, uh, new exodus is always there, the people of the Lord, um, uh, son of man, uh, son of God as, as well. I, I wonder, is Peter's theology... A, a loose collection of analogies and metaphors, or do you think there's some kind of structured or hierarchical, like in his world, is it atonement, therefore everything else? Or, and you don't have to map out what you think that is, but do you get a sense that it's, it is kind of a collection that's trying to glom on to the reality or there's a, a structure to it? Right, right. Well, I think that sometimes it does feel a little bit like buckshot, uh, you know, when you think about Peter's imageries of the church, uh, that, that you pick up in Mark, I mean, it is so, so varied in there. So I think that's a, a really important question to ask, you know, what brings us, uh, what, what makes it all cohere together? And, and I think it's just the Christ event. I think it, it, it all, it all, he is so, uh, Christocentric, and no matter what he's talking about, he always brings us back to Jesus. You know, I kind of wish a lot of modern preachers would do that. <laughs> bring us back. To Maybe Jesus. we shouldn't go down that route. <laughs> <laughs> you know, yes, I, I agree with you. I, you know, I'm sitting next to my wife in church, and and I remember her. You know, on more than one occasion, said, "Why don't they just talk about Jesus?" And uh, and but. But this is this is what brings him together. That's that's the storyline all the way through. Jesus is prominent. Jesus is central on everything that 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 Peter uh, is working on. So, is there a central point? Yes, yeah, Christology. Yeah, and you brought that out very strong in the end of the book. A- absolutely, Christology. You know, and your eschatology uh, coheres there. Your ecclesiology coheres there. Your soteriology coheres there. The themes of the Exodus, New Exodus, cohere there. So, no, it's very Christocentric. And not to be phenomenological, but if if Peter did experience the things that are are written here, I mean, it's kind of like, I, I don't know, have you ever met people who are really hopped up on one particular thinker and like that thinker is the world for them and everything you say, they grind it through the sausage grinder of that. I'm, I'm that person. I have a thinker too that I, I think the world <laughs> of. And, um, but, uh, I want to ask you who it is, but, but tell us. It's okay. Michael Polanyi, but that's, uh, that's beside okay. the point. Yeah. I, I love Polanyi. So, um, but, the uh but yeah you would expect that if somebody had had their their world their life their intellect uh their vision of humanity and the cosmos radically transformed that it would be very difficult to not then f- just on a natural bent to filter all that back through that same teacher who who did all that for you uh, and then add on to it is the god man and you you're witnessing you know you're witnessing these events so that makes a, a very natural center to uh, what you described um, 
I, I actually had a couple other questions for you, but I'll, I'll limit them to one because it's um, it's one that I'm personally interested in. Um, the Mark's Gospel, if if Peter's voice is behind Mark's Gospel, and and the and when we say Peter's voice is behind Mark's Gospel, I mean something by that, but I wonder what you mean by that. Do you, like physically or historically? Do, do you imagine some sequence of historical events that physically is Peter's voice, like? I'm not, I'm not speaking metaphorically anymore. I think, I think, you know, from, uh, from, uh, Papias, I, I think that we can, um, trace this back to Peter's preaching. How did Peter lay out the kerygma and the story? And, and so I think, I think we got, uh, Peter's telling of the gospel story. And so it goes back to the the preaching, which gives it this very you know kind of snappy, uh, you know, and 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 kai kai kai, and he did this and he did that, and it just is so dynamic. And you know, I think one of our disadvantages of being um, uh, is that we're always reading in Vosbaha, um, you know, we're not reading out loud. And to read these texts in, in the original Greek out loud, you know, you get some of the dynamism in there. The um, first Peter, you know, just believe. I mean, I'd never forget the first time I read it aloud and go, "Oh my word, this was this was this was for public discourse." You know, it, it, it's it's really, uh, really uh, quite uh, quite beautiful. So, um, what was the question again? I, well, just so you know, I. I how much I agree with that last statement of yours. I, uh, I've actually preached sermons before where I just read first Peter aloud and just three, three spots stopped and kind of gave a little bit of interpretation and help, but, um, it preaches very nicely, surprisingly, <laughs> surprisingly. Yeah, yeah. So I do think, I do think it gets, I, I uh, to go back to the question, I, I do think that it gets back, Mark gets back to, to Peter himself. And, and what his preaching was, but Mark is being a fairly faithful translator, and there is also translation, which is always, you know, an edit, editorial process. But what's fascinated me is the way, now, you know, I, I, I'll, I'll hold a Mark in priority, and, uh, you know, those of us that, that uh, believe that really need to ask, why in the world would Matthew and Luke use Mark because it is a decidedly inferior uh, literary product. And um, they're doing something called imitatio, you know, uh, where you take a great piece of literature and uh, uh, you do literary borrowing from it. And always, in order to make it your own, to not be accused of uh, furtum, of theft, or clope in Greek, uh, you'd always have to change it. You always have to modify it. And that's exactly what's happening here as Matthew and Luke use Peter, not only cleaning up the grammar, but modifying it in significant ways, making it their own. This is part of the ancient uh, discussion about... Uh, uh, imitatio or mimesis. Um, so it ha you had to change it up. But but the curious thing is that you'd only do that with great pieces of literature. You know, you do it with, with Virgil, you do it with Homer. But 
this, 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 this book, which which I think is, you know, as an epic, I think it is in part an imulatio, a counterethic to Virgil's Aeneid, uh, but at the same time, uh, but is inferior literarily. Now, this is just, I'm going to just punt here. This is just kind of a shot in the dark on it because um, it would take a bit more to <clears throat> to prove it. But but I think that what's going on here is that um, Matthew and Luke are recognizing this as the foundational storytelling right here. Here it is. And it comes from none other than Peter himself. Peter is at the very foundation of our understanding of the story of Jesus and at the foundation of Christian theology. That's what Vox Petri is all about. So I, I think that, you know, we're imagining now, I mean, I obviously coming out of Mark study, there is always a sense when you spend enough time in Mark, you see how Mark has interlocked these stories and sayings and phrases. And then you see how Matthew uses that same story to a very different effect, almost like grabbing the story and moving it over into this different situation. It's, it's really, really hard not to be persuaded for me that there's some kind of mark and priority there uh, when you just see how Luke, Luke and Matthew split up, uh, split it up uh, and use it for it, equally beautiful and different ends. Yeah. And th- you had some yeah, ancient. And the mark and sandwiches. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. The intercalations. And you, you had some ancient sources to that effect that I wasn't aware of as, uh, as well. Um, but it, and again, this is all this is all fascinating and interesting, except for the fact that it. it tends to point in this direction of, well, if there is this guy who is Peter and and does fill this position that he's ascribed, uh, then it does make sense that the the literary creations then flow uh, from that, which is, uh, I think, a point that not many people, I, I've never heard anybody making that point before. So uh, this book was full of all kinds of things I've never heard anybody making point, <laughs> points about before. Congrats. Um, <laughs> Uh, well, we're going to end here with a speed round, and so you don't uh, need to feel compelled to say anything long, or uh, you can you can give quick uh, quick answers or no answer if you just want to stay completely silent, and we'll fill the awkwardness with awkward. Well, first question is very simple: Have you eaten Peter's fish at the Sea of Galilee? I have not. When we saw, no, I didn't. I, I had no idea. I was enamored with the hummus. Oh yes, and the pita bread. Yeah. I, I dream about it <laughs> and the iced coffee, you know, really. Yeah. But I didn't have, I didn't have Peter's, Peter's fish. Peter's fish. You know, well. hey, look, you know, you know, I lived in Costa Rica. Oh, yeah. I've been deep, deep sea fishing and pulled it straight up out of the Trust me, you have had better fish and, than Peter's fish. <laughs> okay. Okay. That's what I was going to yeah, say. Yeah. And I'm living here. If you've ever had trigger South fish Florida. or Wahoo or any of that, then you, yeah, 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 this is, yeah, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. So, uh, Peter will pass on your fish Yeah, and, uh, yeah. And the hummus, uh, in the Mediterranean is, is holy. Divine. Yes. I always oh, tell people divine. the, uh, we lived in Israel for uh, a while when I was on sabbatical and uh, you go into the grocery store and for Americans, we have these like expansive cheese and dairy aisles that just go on forever with mm-hmm. yogurts and cheeses. Mm-hmm. And, 
And in Israel, like the the milk is in bags in a bin over on the side, uh, and the hummus aisle goes on forever and ever. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's like forty different brands of hummus that just keeps going. So I love yeah. it. I just love it. Um, yeah. What biblical or theological work has had the greatest impact on you as a scholar? So, do you have that one person that you really that you turn to and grind everything through? Yeah. Um, you know, when I was a when I was a, a young uh, budding New Testament guy, you know, George Ladd, uh, you know, was like a comb through my hair. Uh, he just straightened things out. I mean, he didn't remain that, but but I think there are, are books that influence us early on that that just kind of set a direction. And George's Ladd, George Ladd's book, I appreciate what Don Hagner did and and. Uh, uh, doing some editorial work and updating uh, on it. But I think um, I've said for many, many years, when I grow up, I want to be like Richard Balcom. Oh. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah. And and uh, for my money, uh, Richard Balcom is, is just princely. Yeah. Uh, uh, you know, I think everyone should read, you know, Jesus and the Eyewitnesses. Uh, Once a year. They really... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's it's just so good. And, and he was one that helped me work, you know, into this idea of testimony uh, in his last chapter of the book. And he's gone through revision on it. I really appreciate the warm endorsement that Richard gave for Vox Petri. Um, and, and he just does, you know, so much. Jude and the Relatives of Jesus. What a great book. Oh, I haven't read this I one. mean, to, oh, yeah. I mean, it is so good. And then, and then little stuff, you know, like the put thing they put together, uh, edited volume on, um, uh, the gospel for all Christians. Right. I mean, or his little collection on of essays on. on freedom, uh, the little revelation volume, which is, yeah, he, he is. I've tried to talk him into, you know, the couple times I've hung out with him, I'm like, you should really go by the nickname Tricky Dicky. But I, I can't get it. You know, he's too British for that to catch on. Yeah, yeah. You know, he's doing, um, uh, he did, when I was writing on uh, June 2nd Peter, I tried to stay away from his commentary and the word Bible commentaries because it would be, I, I knew it would just be like a siren song. Yeah. I, yeah I, it would be this gravity, exactly yep. gravitational pull. So I, I put it aside to do all my work and I thought, ah, oh, you know, look what I came up with. Look what I found. Then I go read Bach and go, oh shoot, he was already there. <laughs> so uh, he did it just such a, such a wonderful job. And he's doing a revision from what I understand of that. I haven't heard any recent notices about he, what last time about. I talked to him. He said health study, health issues. Yeah, yeah, he's had some health issues. He was really big into, I said, hey, Richard, what do you think the next, I don't know him that well. I've only hung out with him a couple of times, but I, I said, what do you think the next thing is in New Testament studies? He said, I think it's archaeology. So he was really big in the Migdal, uh, Magdala uh, excavations, and he's published something on that. But um, hopefully somebody will take him up and follow his lead on that. Cause I think that's an area much needed. Okay. Um, yeah, I think so. I think so. What is your favorite? It can be comida Costa Ricana or Dominican. Uh, what, what, what food, when you go to those places, um, do you like you look forward to eat like the, what is the hummus of Costa Rica or uh, the Dominican Republic for you? Oh, there's, there's, there's no question. It's Gallo Pinto. And and your accent's pretty good. Oh yeah, I fake uh, it until I can make it. Yeah, no, you, you do you, you do good. Gajo Pinto. Now now when you're in Costa Rica, you'll have uh, a black beans and rice for lunch, and then for dinner you'll have rice and black beans, uh, and then in the morning you'll have gajo pinto, 
and gaiju pinto is the black beans and rice from the day before do they mix uh, it mix. oh yeah 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 they they, they mix it up yeah. and you know the oh the breakfast uh, you know gaiju pinto huevo picado you know kind of scrambled eggs uh, jugo de naranja orange juice fresh squeeze pan tostado little baguette with with butter on it maybe a little papaya on the side and just absolutely divine uh breakfast with wonderful uh costa rican coffee interesting it, kaiju what what is the what's the word kaiju i don't know this word gaiju uh gallo uh like rooster oh yeah. like gallo okay um Oh, with the with the morning, yeah, yeah, you have the the accent, yeah, yeah, got it. Of course, they have a very similar. Uh, they have a national dish in Brazil, um, and they they eat it the next day and they put it in a blender and literally blend it and and they call it tutu, which is delicious as well. But it's it's black bean, it's a black bean based um, dish. Okay, um, what's one of the most memorable or awkward things you've had happen in the classroom? I'm sure you have a lot of them. You've been around for a while, so. Oh. Yeah, yeah. It was in Costa Rica. And, um, you know, I was teaching, I taught in Latin America for 13 years, and I was in the classroom in uh, a Seminario Sepa in, uh, in San Jose. And we were going through the Gospel of Matthew, uh, where um, uh, Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount says, uh, you know, you're the, the salt of the earth. And I, I, I proclaimed, I said, hermanos y hermanas, uh, brothers and sisters, uh, somos sal en la tierra, we're, we're, we're salt in the earth, somos como el preservativo en el mundo. And the class went into hysterics. Uh, and I'm going, what did I say? And I could not figure it out. Well, somebody came over and whispered to me that uh, I use the word preservativo, which is a condom. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> it's like embarazada. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, embarazada, which means uh, uh, pregnant and not embarrassed. Yeah, yeah. So, oh, that was it. it, it that was better than I was down. hoping for, I'll tell you. <laughs> Maybe I should have said <laughs> no, no, that. No, no, it's great. I hope if 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 any if any of your uh, listeners get offended, my my apologies. Hey, before I forget, you know, um, you're talking about New Testament archaeology. Here's a guy to watch, and his name is Jordan Ryan. Jordan Ryan, watch for him. He's a Filipino scholar um, who teaches now at Wheaton College. Oh, he he works on synagogue stuff, right? First century synagogue. Yeah, I've I've talked to Jordan before. Yeah, he's sharp guy. No, uh, really is, really, really is. And we talk about the upcoming thing, uh, New Testament archaeology. He's a man. He's a man. I, I read yeah. something by him on the synagogue uh, before I met him, and uh, I was just like, wow. Another one of those. Why have I never thought of this before? Uh, <laughs> um, do you ever get mistaken for Mean Gene, the the WWF wrestling announcer? Oh, all the time. I mean, we just <laughs> just can't go anywhere these days. <laughs> you know, yeah. and uh, there was also a song back in the day, Mean Joe Green. Oh, yeah, and, yeah, Mean uh, Joe Green. Yeah, oh. yeah, yeah. So, you mean know, Joe my, Green my was from name, the, he was from the Steelers, right? Yeah, yeah, okay. yeah, yeah, yeah. I think so. Yeah, yeah. But I'm not a football player, and I don't know. My parents had a sense of humor. I'm Gene, and my middle name is Lee. 
and last name is Green. So I'm I'm now a dean. So I'm wow. Dean Jean Lee Green. And, that is um, awesome. <laughs> yeah, it's not, nothing else is unforgettable. Yeah. Uh, um, well, since you're a professor emeritus and now a dean, Dean Mean Joe Green, or sorry, I'm Mean Jean Lee Green. Um, last question, and it's a simple one. Uh, What's the single greatest book in biblical studies in the last 50 years, excluding any of your own books? <laughs> oh, gosh. Oh, my word. Um, we put this question to everybody, so. Yeah. And, and no punting, because I notice you like to punt. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Now, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say something that, that's that's a little bit uh, different, and... Um, on this one, I, I know the what the expectations are. I mean, we know the names of of the great ones. You think about, you know, all the work that that Tom Wright has done, and we think about uh, Balkum, and we th- we think about we've got just this wonderful cadre of greats that are doing biblical and theological studies. You know, uh, I I cut my teeth. You know. Uh, with folk like uh, Fred Bruce, F.F. F. Bruce, and and Howard Marshall, and uh, you know, I always envied those who studied with uh, uh, with uh, people like Kuhlman. I think about uh, the late John Stam, Costa Rica, who studied with with Kuhlman. So I think about these greats out there, but you know, something's happening in the world today, and um, there's a a shift in the center of Christianity from the West, the North Atlantic region, into the global South and East. And the church uh, in Africa, Asia, Latin America, Oceania, is, um, is you know, self-funding, self-governing, self-propagating, but self-theologizing. And so we're, we're standing right now at uh, what uh, Andrew Walls and uh, uh, Justo Gonzalez have called a uh, a uh, new reformation, a macro reformation, as we're seeing our brothers and sisters in the global South and East and in our mi- minority communities, every place, uh, indigenous communities, uh, finding their, their, their biblical and theological voice and making a contribution to our understanding of the faith. So if you want to pick out one person, it's hard. But let me pick out a representative from the group. And I want to uh, call out uh, KKO, Dr. KKO, who teaches at uh, Garrett Seminary. He has um, uh, written maybe 25 books in, in Chinese, uh, probably most well-known from his, his book, What Does Jerusalem Have to Do with Beijing? Uh, he wrote Musings with Confucius and Paul. I mean, these aren't bestsellers like, like uh, Tom Wright and the rest. But he represents this new wave of biblical and theological scholarship that is really transforming our and deepening our understanding of the faith. So, you know, I remember um, going to Evangelical Theological Society and working on the Majority World Theology series. We had our first session on Majority World Theology and Christology. And Kevin Van Hooser from uh, Trinity Seminary was there, and um, the room was full. 
and I was excited, you know, about so many people came because uh, we had Kevin there and then we had uh, scholars from Africa, Asia, Latin America uh, present, uh, Victor Zigbo and uh, Jules Martinez and uh, others. And uh, everyone came, listened to Van Hooser. And then when our majority world scholars uh, began to present, everyone left. Boy, that was painful. And yet the three that followed knocked it out of the park. And uh, so I work now with Jules Martinez, you know, who is a Latin American theologian. Uh, I think about Carlos Sosa now at Wheaton and... Uh, you know, who can gainsay what, uh, whether you like what he concludes or not, uh, Gustavo Gutierrez has been a force to reckon with. I think about uh, René Padilla and Samuel Escobar. And his daughter now even, I don't know if you followed, uh, Ruth Ruth DeBoer, like incredible thinker. Yeah. I know, I know. So uh, Tole Lege, you know, take up and read, take up and read uh, KK and Steve Pardue and I, uh, edited a six-volume series now put together in one volume on uh, uh, by InterVarsity called Majority World Theology. Uh, KK and I are now editing a, a volume <clears throat> series on uh, cross-currents in Majority World Minority Theology. Uh, first one's on a theology of land. Next one's going to be on theology of migration. Third one's going to be on theologies of identity. And and I think about, um, you know, the there are scholars that are um, the voices that we haven't heard as, as we should hear them, and also within communities in in the United States. Uh, I mean, look at look at the bang up job that Esau McCauley right, is doing. Right. Oh, we've had him on here, you know, yeah. and oh, and he's just great. And uh, love you know, commenting in the New York Times and uh, working on 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 black hermeneutics, and now. Uh, editing a book, uh, The New Testament in Color, along with Amy Peeler at Wheaton College. And, uh, you know, Scott McKnight and I are the two, uh, uh, you know, white guys <laughs> in the volume. And I'm just honored. He told me there's going to be a chapter on on uh, whiteness in there, I think. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And anyways, I... I I think that's so that's so great to hear, and I think you're right. And I I feel like if I if I get a good read on younger biblical scholars, I think everybody feels like we're ready, like we're finally ready to shut up and start listening. Quite honestly, um, and I I think I uh, had the benefit of seminary professors who had spent time in the majority world and always brought those resources into the classroom, and so we were reading Kwame Bidiako and. Uh, Renee Apidia and uh, and it, it, in the 1990s, uh, which seemed so cutting edge back then, but now I, I'm so deeply appreciative and how transformative it was. Yeah, and you know, and when we listen with others, uh, when we sit and we have a hermeneutic of charity as we listen to them, um, uh, we'll learn something. Our faith will be deepened. Um, Betty Aka was at Aberdeen when I was there, and. You know, got to eat with him and um, uh, Renee. You know, has been a good friend over the years, and Escobar, who contributed to the Lausanne Covenant, the fifth paragraph, of the Lausanne Covenant on a Christian social responsibility, can trace straight back to um, Rene Padilla, uh, his work at Lausanne in '74 on the Kingdom of God, and uh, then uh, Samuel Escobar. 
uh, Peruvian missiologist theologian on um, uh, the social dimension of the gospel. The fifth paragraph is in there because of them, because of them. And I was talking to the late John Stott many years ago, and I was asking about Lausanne, and um, as particularly about the fifth paragraph. And he said uh, that he had two versions of the Lausanne Covenant, one with and one without the fifth paragraph, uh, because that issue of Christian social responsibility in this document on world evangelization was so controversial. And um, there was a big debate at Lausanne about it. And he told me he didn't know which version, with or without, would get voted in, in uh, would get voted, get the thumbs up. Well, the delegates voted, and they voted for the version with the fifth paragraph on Christian social responsibility. And then I think it's in the 13th paragraph that they have a word about, uh, you know, the uh, Universal Declaration of Human Rights. I mean, it's just amazing. Well, one of my one of my students at Wheaton did some research on this, went to the archives, and listened to the debate about that paragraph, and they he came to find out that the uh, delegates from the North Atlantic region, Europe, North America, rejected it, and it was the delegates from Africa, Asia, Latin America, Oceania, that gave the thumbs up. So, you know, all the current discussions about Christian social responsibility, thank the Latin Americans for this one. Thank our brothers and sisters in the majority world. They're influencing us already, even when we don't realize it, just as Peter influences us and is with us and is at the table all the time, even when we don't realize it. Yeah, at some point we need to make room for that Southwest Asian theologian from the first century uh, named Peter. Thank you very much, Gene. (laughs) Thank you very much for this book and this time uh, and your wisdom. Well, it's been great being with you and uh, our whole group out there. God bless you. You have been listening to OnScript, delectable conversations on scripture and theology. If this episode has brought you inner peace or lit your biblical fire, please consider a small donation of just 2 or $5 per month. Information on how to donate can be found at onscript.study/donate.